Hey, everybody, it's Hillary. And this week we are doing something we have never done before. We're having a guest host. So in a few minutes, I'm going to duck out of here and turn things over to my good friend, Anne-Marie Baldonado. You might know her voice from Fresh Air. She fills in for Terry Gross sometimes, and she's been a producer there for a very, very long time. You are going to have a good time with her, but thanks to the magic of pre-recording, I'm here to do the ads, and I've got a special request for you coming right after that. All right, so so here's the special request that I told you I was going to have for you. We have got an election show coming up, and we need your kids' questions about elections and politics. So, so we're doing this because I have always found politics to be completely baffling, and this election is especially baffling. And I've got questions. I know you've got questions. So, you know, your kids also must have questions. Your kid can be any age under voting age, under 18, to do this. And and it's simple. Just have them record their first name, where they're calling from, and then ask their question. Then just email the file to hello at longestshortesttime.com with the subject election. If your kid is small and they need some help, it's totally fine to have your voice in the recording too. We are going to get answers to these questions. So send in your recordings of your kids and they might wind up on our election show. All right, that's it for me. Have fun with Anne-Marie. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado, a producer on the NPR show Fresh Air. I occasionally do interviews for that show as well. I'm not a voice that you've heard on this show before, but you may know my name from the show credits. I'm an advisor on the show, and I'm a friend of Hillary's. Now, Hillary's on vacation this week. She's taking a much-deserved break. But before she left, she put together a really great show. It's another installment of the Sex Advice for Parents series, based on questions that you, our listeners, submitted. I always find these shows to be super interesting. And as someone who would be way too skittish to submit a question, I thank those of you who did. When we've done this before, we got advice from experts like Dan Savage and Dr. Hilda Hutcherson. But today, we hear from a therapist who's known for helping married couples get their sex lives back on track. I'm Esther Perel. I'm a couples therapist and a relationship consultant. I'm the author of a book called Mating in Captivity. That book is an international bestseller and has been translated into 25 languages. In it, Esther explores why couples lose sexual interest for each other. It's actually the topic of one of her popular TED Talks. Here's a bit of it. And why does sex make babies and babies spell erotic disaster in couples? (laughs) It's kind of the fatal erotic blow, isn't it? She's also really interested in why people cheat. She travels the world asking everyone she meets about it. Here's a bit of her TED Talk called Rethinking Infidelity. Now, you've listened to me, and I know what you're thinking. She has a French accent. She must be pro-affair. <laughs> so you're wrong. I am not French. <laughs> and I'm not pro-affair. Esther's native language is French, but she was born in Belgium. She lives in New York now and came to our studio to answer your questions and to talk to Hillary about sex and parenthood. 
Before we jump in, though, I will say that this time around, we only received questions from married heterosexual couples. But there is stuff in here about desire or lack thereof, about physical touch and about fantasy that can be helpful for anyone. Now, I'm glad that we're adding Esther Perel's perspective to these questions, and it's a perspective that's novel and interesting. She defines sex and intimacy in a way that goes beyond actual sex, and she challenges how we think about our bodies. And she calls children Smurfs, you know, like the little blue cartoon characters, Smurfs, which we found to be kind of charming. I think it's a Belgian thing. And one more thing, like our other shows on parenthood and sex, although children are often the product of sex, this episode might not be appropriate for them. Esther herself has been married for 30 years and has two grown-up sons. She started out as a couples therapist in her home country, Belgium. She worked with all kinds of couples there, including some who, like her parents, were survivors of the Holocaust. In her training, she was taught that if a relationship was good, then the sex should also be good. But as she explains to Hillary in some of the couples that she met, she didn't find that to be the case. I began to notice that couples that would work with me or with other colleagues of mine, for that matter, improved in many domains of their relationship. But often what improved in the kitchen made no dent in the bedroom. And so I began to think, you know, what does it mean when people come to me and they say, we love each other very much, we have no sex, or I know that my partner loves me dearly, I don't doubt that, but it's been years since I felt wanted, and they knew the difference. And I began to think maybe love and desire, they relate, but they also conflict, and herein lies the mystery of eroticism. Um, And... So, so we're going to be getting into specifics uh, when we turn to listener questions. But um, is there any, uh, like, can you talk in general about the impact that uh, parenthood has on a couple's sex life? Well, I think that many couples will tell you that the arrival of the first child is a wonderful experience on an individual level very often. And plenty of studies will show that marital satisfaction plummets. And the child-rearing culture at this point is such that it's all, when you have, you know, transition from two to three or whatever the number, it's about child-rearing. It's never about couple preservation. And unfortunately, there is no family that will survive if the couple doesn't do well. And then the main thing I would say is when we say sex, what do we mean? The act The act in the way that it is typically defined here in the West with a five-minute foreplay to a genital intercourse that ends with an orgasm that proves that sex actually happened and that often ends when he ends and then we go to sleep. If that is the sex we're talking about, then why would we be surprised that after reproduction, people are not interested, men or women for that matter? Uh, If we're talking about the erotic realm, the preservation of two adults within the partnership and within the family life, that's a whole different dimension. That makes sense. Well, let's get to the specifics. Let's get to the questions. Um, let's, let's hear the first clip. Hi, I'm Martha. I'm 35 years old, and I live in Houston, Texas, with my husband of 12 years and our three-year-old sons. Since the twins were born, I've had zero libido. My husband is wonderful, he's patient, but I am so frustrated. I feel distracted all the time and feel my biggest impediment is calming my mind from its frenzy of to-do lists to actually focus on or think about sex. I didn't have a big sex drive before I had the boys, but this is a new low for me. 
My twins were born at 37 weeks by cesarean section, and I tandem nursed them for 21 months. Now, the emotional work is more taxing. When my husband suggests sex, all I can think about is how the kitchen floor needs mopping again, or the pile of laundry needs to be washed, um, or there's something else I'm sure that needs my attention right now and is much more important than a romp in bed. When we have gone on vacation without the boys, I can slow my mind down, but then sleep becomes more important than anything else. So here's my question. How do I find my libido again? Mr. Pearl, yes. what, what do you have to say to Martha? Such a familiar uh, and painful um, situation. Um, I would say to you, Martha, a number of things. On the long list of what your children need, parents who have a healthy sex life should feature as a central item. Because if you keep this going long term, basically your relationship is at risk. It's at risk simply because you have a partner who misses you, who feels lonely, who would like to reconnect with his wife, with his lover, and uh, and who needs to stay connected to the realm of play, of imagination, of mystery, of sexuality in order to thrive. The person who no longer misses it cannot relate to the one who is hungry. And the one who is hungry feels that they're knocking at the door to someone who is utterly non-responsive. When your partner suggests, imagine that he's not coming to ask you for something, like your two boys, that it's not one more person you now need to take care of, but that he's actually offering you to stay connected to a major part of who you are that you are currently completely neglecting, and that he's doing you a service. And then don't think about romp. Your idea of having to climb this mountain and having to muster the energy and having to get there, just simply imagine someone touching you, stroking you, licking you, kissing you, just giving you attention. And if it takes you some time to calm your mind, put some good music, have a glass of wine, take a puff of, of, of marijuana if you want, but do something that helps you ground. But... It is really actually quite important for you to not lose that part of you. Don't think of it as sex with your husband. It's that part of you. Because if you become a 100% only mom, what's going to start to happen when you deprive the relationship of that replenishment is that we recruit the children. The children will become the source of affection, the source of touch, the source of sensual connection. And it is not their job. It is not their job to provide that for the parents as a replacement for what the parents don't give each other. You will notice, many of you, that this erotic connection that we have today with our children, tickling, gazing, adoring, you know, that p position of this baby in your arm is often not that different from what people felt when they were together in the beginning. It's that rapture. And sometimes when the women say, at the end of the day, I have nothing left to give, I think what they are also saying is, at the end of the day, there is nothing more I need. Mm -hmm. They are, in fact, satiated. By the connection with the baby. By the connection with the baby. And then they say, I don't want you to touch me anymore. I don't want anybody. But I'm all touched out. I'm all touched out. But what they don't say is how pleasurable that touch was. Hmm. Satiated means not just I've given the whole day. It's also I've received. That's the secret story. 
So you have to understand that when you are being satiated with the babies, there is an absolute experience of loss in there, which when you're satiated by the baby, you don't have the loss. So what do you do about that? You, on occasion, very consciously say, instead of touching the silky skin of my baby, I'm going to go touch my partner. I'm going to go stroke his head. And his because, rough skin. Yes, yes, <laughs> his rough skin, babies. totally. Because, because we need this. And, and you don't have to start because you have desire. You don't even have to start because you are turned on. You start from a place of willingness, Willingness means I'm not in the mood. I could totally do without. But generally, when it happens, I actually don't regret and I think it's a good thing. Even if I'm not fully enjoying the sex per se, I enjoy the connection that it gives us. We fight less, we round off the edge and there is more fluidity between us. He's in a better mood. You know, and, and ultimately, I feel like it was a great thing for the relationship. That willingness allows you to remain open to see what would happen. If you start from the place of, I have to be turned on, I have to be into it, I have to be get my mojo back, and from there I get going, for many people at your stage, it's absolutely not fitting your reality. It's a demand that you can't meet. Part of what saps the desire and taps the libido is that everything that eroticism thrives on is what family life defends against. Routine, consistency, monotony, repetition, all these things that create stability for a good, secure home. This is not what it necessarily turns us on. It's not particularly sexy. So the notion that one could let go, that one could be greedy, is what is, a, is an old taboo that we are today breaking. Because a mother wouldn't do this. That's right. Right. Because a mother is meant to be chaste and selfless. She cannot be selfish, which desire requires. She can't be self-focused. She can't because then she would feel guilty because she's not attending to her schmurfs. If you have an identity of only mother, don't be surprised you don't have desire. You have to have a woman in there, a person, a sensual being to stay connected to your sexuality. It's the same for the man. And it's the same in same-sex couples and in heterosexual couples. I think it's very important. The piece of the identity is that the concept of parent draws out of me all the parts of me that are about responsibility and caretaking and other focus, other directed. The sexuality is the exact opposite. And some of us struggle to maintain these two identities in the same location. Coming up, co-sleepers get an answer to the age-old question, how do you keep up a sex life when there's a kid sleeping in between you? Also, can motherhood awaken your inner lesbian? Stay with us. We're back. I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado, a producer at the NPR show Fresh Air, here with more of Hillary's conversation with couples therapist and author Esther Perel. She's answering your questions about sex and parenthood. Let's hear our next call. My name is Catherine, and I'm from Chicago. Um, and my husband and I, we have a son that's two years old. He's what I like to call a semi-co-sleeper because he sleeps in his bed, but he eventually ends up in mine. I've been able to lose all my pregnancy weight, but my husband has gained what I lost and then some. So when it comes to sex, he is not into it as much as I am. He blames his weight or he blames 
being stressed from work or being tired or the best one that our kids gonna walk into us having sex. Um, I'm just wondering how I can help him feel sexy so that he could be in the mood as much as I am in the mood. Great, great question. One of the things that you highlight first and foremost that makes me feel really good is that you're letting it be very clear that it is not just women whose desire is affected by their sense of self-worth, their sense of competence, their body image, their self-esteem, etc. That male sexuality is no less driven by internal states than that of women. Uh, be it weight, be it uh, stress at work, be it performance, accomplishment, all of that. So um, you can't, you can always tell him, I find you, you know, what's in, what, what draws me to you is not just your weight and your body and your looks and all of that. What draws me to you is, is how I feel about you, is the kind of man you are. It's very difficult to talk him into that. If he doesn't have it, you can talk blue in the face, unfortunately. You have to continue to do it, but you have to also know that it has limited return. It, it doesn't change the way he energizes himself. So I want to know, is he still sexual? If so, where is he sexual? And, uh, and does he have the motivation? That's the first thing. You ask him, do you miss it? Or do you feel so bad about yourself that you don't even miss it because you don't think you deserve it? Do you realize what it's like for me to miss it? Can we at least kiss? Can we stroke each other? Can we touch each other, hold each other, lick each other? There's so many other things that are all part of sex so that at least I don't feel like I lie there next to you every night and feel like I'm a rock that is getting colder and colder. And I want to know, does he understand that? Because sometimes when I feel bad about myself, I'm so busy wallowing on me that I don't really connect with the fact that that may fit, that may I may make you feel bad too, that this has an effect on you. It's not just about me. So is he attuned to you? Does he realize what's going on? And as far as the child walking in, children have walked in since time in memoriam. And in most cultures, <laughs> children sleep in the same room as the parents. And there's more than one. So we have to really understand that they will say, ooh, or they will want to check just to see what's happening. And you will simply say, mommy and daddy are feeling very good with each other. They're giving each other, they're, they're being loving with each other at this moment. Let me take you back to bed. That's that. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've gotten a lot of um, questions about co-sleeping in the past, and uh, our listeners have never been satisfied with the answer because the previous um, experts we've had on have discouraged co-sleeping. Um, they say that it is just bad for um, couples' sex lives. What are your thoughts on co-sleeping? If you told me that the people who don't co-sleep have a better sex life than the people who co-sleep, I would. Re that's a question. And is the correlation the fact that they're not co-sleeping? Or could we say that people for whom their sex life matters less are more inclined to do the co-sleeping? Correlation is not causation. What is leading to what here? Right. You know, um, I think the question of co-sleeping in terms of what it does for the family, what it does for the children is one thing. And the effects of co-sleeping on the couple's sexuality is more directed by the couple's sexuality than by the fact that the kid is sleeping with them. When people want to meet, 
they find a way to meet. Be it that they, on occasion, every few weeks, find an evening to say, a morning to stay home an hour later after the kids gone to the nursery school, or they find a way to stay in their car, or they find a friend who is giving them their apartment while he's traveling, or, you know, there's no shortage of where people can go and have sex when they want to have sex. That's right, that's right. Um, and on occasion, you know, you say to your children, when they're a little bit older, this mom and dad are closing the door right now. And um, as one of my patients said that I always remember, she said, when I used to hear Marvin Gaye, I knew not to open the door. <laughs> you know, it's like you say, but it is about boundaries. Yeah. It's about basically saying, so the, so the kid is there at night, but there is, you know, six o'clock, the kid is playing. It's been a play date. You close the door and you have your moment. It's not as convenient, maybe, but it's not impossible. You, there are people who can marry co-sleeping and having a good sex life. There are people who use the co-sleeping as a justification for not having a sex life. Right. But it's not sure that if they were not co-sleeping, their sex life would be any different. Right. Um, our next question comes from a dad. Let's, let's hear the clip. Hello, I'm Guillermo. I've been married to with my wife for nine years. We have a three-year-old and a three-month-old, and I've recently given her a pass on sex for the next five years, considering she's always tired, exhausted, and just not in the mood. However, we're still averaging about once a month, so this helps alleviate a lot of the stress and fighting that goes back and forth with this. If she wants it, I'm ready. If not, then let me know when you're well-rested and up for it. I'm curious if this will work or if I'm setting up myself for disappointment five years from now when the status quo will remain. Thanks. So I think that this happens a lot. There's sort of like you create a system after the kids are born. Um, and you create an adaptation and the adaptation becomes the culture. Exactly. Can he expect a change or do they need to come together and, and create a new system for five years from now? See, the truth is that not all of this is always so predictable. You can have one partner, uh, Guillermo can have a wife who, um, after the youngest becomes three, because that's really where you, the shift really takes place, uh, suddenly says, my turn now. I've been wrapped in diapers and poop and uh, now it's my turn. And she awakens and suddenly, uh, wow, he's got his woman back. And you can have another one who actually, this was exactly what she always wanted. And maybe it had not that much to do with the children per se, or the children created other needs and other ways to be satisfied in life. And um, and he will have, um, you know, a semi-happy marriage, as he would call it. Um, I think that besides just saying I gave my wife a pass, what's really essential is to maintain the erotic connection between two people. And that is the gaze, the smile, the noticing them as a sexual being, the, 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 the squeeze of the cheek in the elevator. There's so many other pieces to that sexuality that you do want to preserve so that it doesn't become a culture. I think that um, you also want to tell her, I miss it. I, I, you know, and I think what's very important for Guillermo and other men is to explain that when you miss sex, it's not sex you miss. It's everything that sex gives you access to. 
And for many men, the language, or for many women for that matter, the language of sex is the language of intimacy, no different than the spoken intimacy or the doing nice things for each other intimacy. It is a way to be given to. It is a way to feel taken care of. It is a way to experience pleasure. It's a play zone. It's a, it's a sandbox. The erotic is the adult sandbox. And so to deprive someone of sex is really not just to deprive them of, of an orgasm. You can get an orgasm by yourself perfectly fine. It's the entire gateway that this sexuality gives us access to. And that is what people begin to long and to miss. And the feeling that a Guillermo may have after years of that is a certain kind of deadness inside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the deadness inside. It's I function, I manage, I have joys. It's not like I don't have pleasures and joys of all kinds of other things. But inside, there's a certain kind of aliveness that those people for whom sexuality is a beautiful experience utterly miss and not that different from people who say I love music any other thing like that wouldn't have to be justified the way that we need to justify sex that's true I've never thought about it that way um I think this is a good segue into our next question um what happens when you're feeling a deadness um let's hear the next caller Erin here calling from Minnesota in the heartland of America I have a question. My husband and I have been married for seven years, and we've been sleeping together and dating for nearly 20. Like many mothers, my sex drive and my attraction to my husband has really decreased, well, plummeted, since our two children have been born. We have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. However, I find that I'm still very turned on and attracted to women, It's something that's always been a curiosity for me, but has now turned into a full-blown fantasy. I'm particularly attracted to some of the women that I work with, and I have daydreams of raising our kids together in domestic feminine bliss. What gives? Has motherhood awakened my inner lesbian? I don't know that I've ever thought of motherhood awakening an inner lesbian, but motherhood (laughs) may have awakened you to a certain experience of yourself as a woman and therefore of a different attunement and connection and attraction to other women, which you may or may not have had before. Um, And it may be a sexual attraction or it may be a complicity, uh, a kind of compatibility with other women because of shared experience and shared outlook on life that then becomes really erotic. You know, attraction isn't just physical. Um, It's also intellectual. It's also shared worldview. It's also shared struggles for that matter. So I don't know. Maybe your husband would be very happy with two women. Um, and at least with some experiences with two women. Um, and maybe actually you could have be with him while you tell him about that fantasy. It depends how open you are in the dialogue with your husband about your own inner erotic life or he's with you for that matter. Um, or are you saying that you are more and more drawn towards sharing a life with another woman um, and that you feel that more of you could be in- integrated in a life with a woman than with a life with a male partner. And at that moment, the issue is not at all about sexuality per se, but more about um, who is the companion with whom you want to be. Um, and are you prepa- and, and do you want to dismantle the relationship that you have with your husband in order to pursue that? If you don't, 
then the next option is you tell him, you know, I've noticed that about me. And for all, you know, he may, I don't know, one husband may be very relieved to know that his wife still has it in her and actually finds it really reassuring. He's just upset that it's not about him. One husband may actually um, get very turned on by it, and another husband may feel like he has nothing to compete with because he cannot compete with a woman because that's not what he is. And so um, it feels very much like a hopeless situation. It can go in all three directions. I don't know the inner workings of your relationships enough to predict that. You know, I think fantasies can change a lot after becoming a parent. Um, when do you suggest that people act on their fantasies um, versus incorporating them, you know, into their relationship with their partner as a fantasy? You know, the first thing that regulates most fantasies in the context of the relationship is our anticipation of the person's judgmentalness. If you exp if you anticipate judgment or disgust or aversion or disinterest, you basically know to take your fantasies underground. But we have to unpack the word. People think of fantasy, they think of Fifty Shades, they think of accoutrements and costumes and roles and scripts and the whole thing. They don't think that, you know... This morning, after the kids are going to leave, uh, in fact, we're going to pretend we go to work, but we don't, and we're going to stay home. And, um, and I'm going to be sitting at the table, and I'm going to pretend that I'm working, but in fact, you know that I'm waiting for you to come to with me. And no, you're not going to come right away because you're going to make me wait, because you're actually going to pretend that you believe, that I make you believe that I'm really working, and we're going to be teasing each other in this way. And this whole fantasy, you know, has nothing to do with hardcore of nothing. It just simply says we're going to tease each other and we are going to play hooky and we are going to pretend as if we went to work and be the responsible adults that we always are. But for a moment, we're going to give ourselves, a, you know, a therapy of indulgence, um, as I like to call it. So there is all kinds of fantasy. Fantasy is anything that enlivens and amplifies the excitement. And very way too few couples share their fantasies with each other, actually. In a way, you know, fantasies is what allows us to remember how we were when we began. Fant you know, why don't we play, you know, the first time we met? <laughs> fantasies allow you to remember the breasts that have been confiscated. Fantasies allow you to remember the hair you no longer have. Fantasies is what allows you to tolerate reality. And when you really understand people's fantasies, you actually understand the emotional needs that they bring to their sexual encounters. That is actually why they're so rich and so deep. Now, when to share them with your partner? When you think it could actually be fun. That's very simple. If you think it would be a fun thing to do and it would be an amazingly uh, an interesting discovery and exploration, a place to go where you've not gone before... Um, then you want to bring it up. When you say, this is mine and I relish it in my own secret garden, that's perfectly fine too. Um, when you feel bad about it, ashamed about it, guilty about it, or feel you have a secret, or feel that because you're thinking about something else than the person you're with after 18 years, you are betraying them, then you have a problem with your fantasy life in a way that becomes actually inhibiting rather than amplifying. So our next caller um, is somebody who did act on something that she and her partner thought would be fun. And it went well or it flopped? Let's, we're <laughs> we're going to find out. John, can you play this one? 
Hi, I'm a married woman living in Chicago in my mid-30s. Um, my husband and I have been together for 12 years, and we have one child and another on the way. Since the second trimester hormone surge, my libido has been through the roof. Fantastic. My husband and I are having so much sex, and I recently got into kink for the first time. I discovered I enjoy BDSM, especially as a submissive. And we even went to a fetish club for the first time, which was exhilarating. So my question or more of a concern is when my sex drive diminishes after I have the baby, is there anything I can do to get back to this place again, biologically and psychologically? Would it be reasonable for me to try Viagra? Any other ideas that might help us keep this spirit alive? I just really wish I could keep this libido forever. Oh, but you won't. (laughs) And Viagra is not going to help you with those hormones. You're lucky. You're one of the lucky ones for whom, you know, you have a massively horny pregnancy. And it is, for many women, as you say, exhilarating. It's like a force of life inside that that they never knew. For others, it's the utter opposite. Um, But I think... What you will preserve may not be this kind of hormonal level, but what you will preserve is your erotic mind, is your energy, your imagination, your curiosity, your sense of adventure, your willingness to explore. And that does not disappear post-pregnancy. You may have less of an interest for a while because you are tired, busy and absorbed in the in the the glow of uh, or the glow of the pain actually of of postpartum but uh but after that those are not temporary ingredients those ingredients live inside of you and they will come back maybe differently maybe you'll be interested in a different thing and so it may take you longer or it may take certain specific things or it may take more of a concentration yes that may happen but inherently you're not going to lose your adventuresomeness um there are very few people who liked kink before and suddenly have zero interest in it afterwards. That's that's encouraging to hear. In a minute, Esther talks about touching without really touching. Don't go away. <laughs> We're back. I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado, in for Hillary, who's away on vacation this week. Here's more of Hillary's conversation with psychotherapist Esther Perel, who knows a lot about sex and parenthood. She's answering questions submitted by you, our listeners. I'm going to read our next question. Um, This comes from a woman named Eva. And Eva um, has gone through something that I think is very common um, for women, uh, but is not often talked about. So here's Eva's question. Uh, She says, I'm a rape survivor, and I've spent years working on that and processing up the wazoo. When my husband and I first started trying for a baby, we got stuck in sex that was so unfun and unsexy. We ended up having to do multiple rounds of IVF to get pregnant, and the whole nonsense felt so re-traumatizing. The invasiveness of the transvaginal ultrasounds, not to mention the invasiveness of the hormones and the shots, etc. She says, I read Penny Simpkins' book, When Survivors Give Birth. That's a a book Mm -hmm. specifically for uh, sexual assault survivors. who give birth. Uh, And she says, I made an intentional choice to disclose being a sexual trauma survivor on the birth plan. When I went into labor, I wanted to at least try for an unmedicated birth. 
after three days in labor, I was I was stalled out at eight centimeters, and for various reasons, I was ushered into an emergency cesarean. Um, I wouldn't have minded ending up in a C-section, but they didn't use enough anesthesia, um, so she was in a lot of pain. Uh, she says, now that I'm four months postpartum, I still cannot even imagine having sex or feeling sexy. I have yet to touch my C-section scar. I do have an amazingly supportive and loving partner, but I feel so sad about what happened. I want to have sex. I don't want to have to do any more damn processing about body trauma. Um, so go dancing. Go dancing. Start by going dancing. You don't talk when you dance that much. At least, you know, uh, don't go for dinners and sit face to face. Go dancing and have this body move in the way that it enjoys movement and, um, and, and, and round movements and cur curve, curves. Um, and go dance with him or go dance alone. Go do S factor, which I think is extremely powerful in women that have experienced what you have experienced. But the main thing is have this body move in places that are enjoyable, pleasurable, and nobody's going to poke you anywhere. That's the first thing. And then, um, Don't start thinking about penetration and all of this stuff right now. It may not hurt you at all because you actually had a cesarean, but it may just feel a, a more invasiveness. So um, just think about things that you very much enjoy, um, that you can ask from him, that you can give to him, and that are very sexual. They don't have to be the classic stuff. As a whole, what will possibly... Um, energize you is to actually come up with um, different situations. Yeah. Um, you know, when people have nightmares, one of the most important kind of work one does with them is um, you have them tell the dream and then you have them basically come up with a different ending. Mm -hmm. Retell the whole dream, but with a different end. Imagine that you were retelling this story, but with a different end. And you actually had had the experience where you were in charge of your body and not the doctors who had to come and be in charge of it. And that now you're going to play out with your husband a sexuality in which you are utterly in charge with your husband. Imagine that you said to him, touch me without touching me. And have him totally scan your entire body and touch you while he doesn't touch you. Are you, so are you talking about um, literally have like having him put his hand like inches away from That's her right. body? Yes, hover. Mm -hmm. It's it's a cold. It's a hovering touch. It's extremely beautiful for because you don't have to worry. It ain't gonna touch you physically, but it's going to touch you sensually, emotionally, psychologically, erotically. And you will see that you will start to have new experiences that are entirely sexual and that don't make you feel like you are the passive victim. How have you managed to have um, a happy marriage for 33 years? Oh, it's not always been happy. <laughs> I've had every marriage like everybody else, you know. it's a, um, I mean, I think it's a very good, strong, thriving relationship, but I, I don't think that when we say happy, it's as if people have been on constant... Uh, you know, dial. Um, we have done a lot of preserving the adventure, I would say. We've done the, the connecting family, secure, stable nest, and then we've done a lot of things that, um, you know, things that I advise to a lot of parents. You need, when you go out, at least once in a while, a night where you don't have to go home because there's a babysitter waiting for you. 
You need to ask help from a lot of other couples and make this become communal. We need creative ways of recreating the community. You want to be out that night where you feel like you no longer have a curfew. You're not at the same level of the child. And you can once again reconnect with that boundless, unbridled, limitless, you know. And when I say away, it's not fancy, money-driven things. It can be swapping apartments with somebody. I mean, it can be, you know, going in a tent. But it is about shuffling the units, and not the children dictate the entire life of the family. That is often the model these days in the kind of a parenting in the age of perfection, with a centrality and over-sentimentalization of the kids that has kind of reached an apex of folly. So couples are spending more time with their children, more time at work, and way less time with each other these days. You, you've talked about um, after an affair, um, when if a couple decides they're going to stay together after an, an affair, thinking of the uh, before the affair as a first marriage and after the affair as your second marriage, like you're starting all over again with a new relationship. Um, is it useful, do you think, to think of parenthood that way too, pre-baby and post-baby as like a new marriage? Absolutely. I think that everybody should be able to say, I've been with the same person for 25 years and we've had two or three marriages. And the first one may not actually be only with the children, but it may be when the second child arrived. I can say that my second marriage came not with my first child, but with my second one. Because my first one integrated super well. I could take him anywhere. We, our life continued. It was a couple and a baby. My second one demanded different structure. He was not as pliable. And then suddenly you get a car, you know, with two seats in the back. Mm -hmm. And then you become that different family unit. Um, so the notion of multiple marriages inside one marriage is, I think, very apt for the time. Every company, every economy that you look at today talks about fluidity and flexibility. Every system is trying to reorganize itself into that, not just longevity. Longevity is not enough to show to show success these days. So that flexibility, that ability to, to reconfigure who's going to work, which one works longer hours, which one wakes up in the morning, which one is in charge of that. We, it, that fluid role distribution, one person makes sure that we go out and we still know which is the concert we should be at. And the other one makes sure that the kids are taken care of so we can go. And these two need each other. Instead of saying, how can you think about going out? And the other one saying, you're completely absorbed with the kids. For instance, the last time you thought about anything else, they say, thank you. Because you are absorbed with the kids, I can look at the concert list. And because you are looking at the concert list, I can make sure the kids are taken care of and, and we preserve each other like that. Esther mm -hmm. Perel, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Esther Perel's best-selling book is called Mating in Captivity. She has a lot more advice to give. We've got a link on our website to her online workshops. There are some about building communication and desire in long-term relationships. And we've got a promo code. We also have info on some of the things Esther mentioned, including those S-Factor classes. I didn't know what they were either. So go check it out on the post for this episode. That's episode 96. And while you're there, tell us your sex and parenthood questions in the comments. How did you feel about Esther's advice? Do you still have questions that we haven't answered? Leave your questions there. This podcast is produced by Hilary Frank and Abigail Keel. We are edited by Peter Clowney. 
Our engineers are Pete Karam and the Reverend John Delore, who, after listening to Hillary and Esther talk about parenthood and sex for quite some time, worked up the courage to ask his own question. Check. Cool. So we're in our third trimester. Mm-hmm. And so we were talking to somebody the other day, and, you know, sex came up, and they said, so you're in the third trimester, so you have to do different positions and and take it easy. And I got very concerned. So this is just really like a mechanical question. In the third trimester. Is she complained? Has she complained? Does it hurt? Does it bother? If it hasn't troubled anybody, then continue. The, the, the thing that people generally emphasize is less positions and more contractions. Orgasm accelerates birth, mm-hmm. the contractions. But if she's coming to the end of her trimester, that it's actually the, much better than to take some of the meds. You know, a lot of good orgasms will, will get you there. So if it doesn't trouble you, if it doesn't trouble her primarily, mm-hmm. then you continue the positions that you both enjoy. What about the baby? The baby is not going to be touched. Baby is tucked super nicely in there. You can't squish the Smurf? No, you can't. (laughs) Our theme music is by The Batteries Duo. Editorial support comes from me and Antonia Akatunde. Next week, I go back to my regular job, and Hillary will be back with another great new episode. And while you're waiting for that, if you want to laugh, check out my interview with comedian Ali Wong. She performed her first stand-up special when she was super pregnant. She was like seven months pregnant. We talk about that. We talk about sex, about how our body has changed through pregnancy. We also talk about racism and sexism and work-life balance as a stand-up comic. And, of course, she's really funny. You can find that Fresh Air episode online or where you get your podcasts. And while you're there, of course, make sure you're also subscribed to The Longest Shortest Time. As always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we're looking for your stories. Remember, right now, we're especially interested in how your kids are reacting to the current election. Are they asking you questions? Do they learn about it at school or from other kids? I know right now my five-year-old is completely obsessed with who her grandparents are voting for. She has opinions about it. Submit your questions and comments. Hillary has something super fun planned for a future show. So go to LongestShortestTime.com and submit your story. Now hear this, it's coming to Anaheim this October. It's a brand new podcast festival where you can hang out with your favorite hosts and other podcast superfans, and everyone is going to be there. Everyone? Everyone. I'm talking Comedy Bang Bang. Good morning, Vietnam! One of my favorite movies about one of my favorite places. WTF. And then at first I thought, this is fun. Then I thought, I'm going to die. And that's Louis C.K.'s work. That's <laughs> criminal. Did you think for a second, oh, I'm like, I'm, I'm, in, I'm dying. I'm going to die. Oh, yeah. I thought it was it. Absolutely. Love off. They say that ghosts are people caught between two worlds. I'm caught between two worlds. Plus, Super Ego, How Did This Get Made, Pop Culture Happy Hour, Spontaneous Nation, Lore, The Memory Palace, Tannis, Hello from the Magic Tavern, and over 30 podcasts in total. Tickets are going fast, including a very limited number of intimate VIP packages with reserved seating. So get yours now and learn all the details at nowhearthisfest.com. Stand up. You sing your wolf? This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf, a 
fa 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 fa